Welcome to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. Welcome to this special edition of the Dyad Podcast. Our usual plan is to drop an episode every two weeks, and we've got a pretty well put together schedule for the next few months. But here at the podcast, we also want to be adaptable and flexible when critical issues pop up that really merit an in-depth examination that is timely and relevant. And that's what we're doing here today. Three weeks ago, the Department of Education unveiled new regulations related to Title IX that has really all of higher education in a bit of a turmoil right now. And while these new regulations really deal more with one-on-one student versus student issues of sexual harassment and other forms of sexual misconduct in the manner by which those allegations are addressed, but there are some implications for fraternities and sororities. And so on the podcast, I wanted to spend some time talking about how those new regulations impact Greek life on campus. My two guests today are probably the best people in this industry that I could talk to about these changes. As you'll hear in their introductions, they have both experience at the campus level. They're both attorneys who specialize in Title IX and civil rights law. And more importantly, they're members of fraternities and sororities. And so they really understand this perspective from every possible angle. Scott Lewis and Sonny Schuster are both partners with TNG Consulting, formerly the INCIRM Group, the National Center for Higher Education and Risk Management, and are founding members of the Board of Advisors for the Association of Title IX Administrators, or more popularly known as a TICSA. They literally wrote the book on Title IX. No one has engaged in this work more over the last two decades than the people who are affiliated with TNG, in particular Scott and Sonny. And I'm thrilled to welcome them to the podcast today. Scott and Sonny, thanks so much for coming on the Dyad podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Gentry. I, uh, yeah, thanks for having us. This, this was uh, kind of uh, an audible at the last minute. You know, we've got all of our episodes planned out over the next few months, but we really, we want our content to be timely. And, you know, this came down the pike last week, a couple weeks ago now, and really wanted to get on with the two people who I think have the most expertise nationally, who've literally written the book in this area, who were talking about Title IX long before the 2011 Dear Colleague letter. So I I appreciate y'all taking a little time out of your busy schedule to come on and and talk to folks about the new Title IX regulations. Before we get into that, uh, Sonny, start with you. You Tell our listeners just a little bit about your background and kind of how you came to be doing the, the work that you do now. I'm happy to do that, Gentry. Um, Of course, uh, my background is in higher education. I uh, work for two um, large institutions, one of them, um, The Ohio State University, where I was the Associate Dean of Students and uh, oversaw and advised uh, fraternities, sororities, student organizations, uh, did student conduct work, and that was uh, for about 18 years before I went to law school. Since that time, I've been a higher education attorney and uh, focused primarily in the civil rights arena of disability and Title IX, uh, certainly some First Amendment uh, elements as well, and um, have been partnering with Scott and our TNG team for the last 11 years. Great. And my name is Scott Lewis, and I'm a partner with TNG as well. Uh, background is in higher ed and law, much like Sonny. 
uh, served as associate vice provost, and I've been on the faculty at a couple of institutions. Most of my experience has been with Texas A&M, University of South Carolina, and um, St. Mary's College full-time, uh, but has been doing this work as a consultant for about uh, 18, 19 years now, worked with thousands of institutions. In the Title IX space, Gentry, um, both Sonny and I have trained uh, I think we finally hit the 10,000 person mark between Title IX coordinators, investigators, and hearing panelists. To, to, we've seen it all. <laughs> two renowned experts and literally people who've worked on campus, who, who have trained, who have a multi-institutional approach, and, and, and who, by the way, both are members of fraternities and sororities. Yes. yes. A, a proud, a very proud member of Delta Gamma. And uh, Scott, very proud member of Kappa Delta. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I was surprised you messed that up, Gentry. I know. And, and Scott, we, we give Scott a free pass. He's a member of Kappa Sigma. We like to give Kappa Sigma a hard time here on the, on the podcast. We've always given Scott a bit of a free pass because uh, I suspect he, he, he views their shenanigans much like we do. So, um, But I say that to share both also very – pro-Greek involved uh, alumni with their respective organizations. So they really understand this issue from every angle. And so really excited to, to have the two of you on. Sonny, maybe if you'll start us out, just you know, for the, for the listener out there who's not super familiar with the context around Title IX, what these regulations mean and, and why they're important, uh, fill us in just a little bit. What, what has been the history of, of this issue and, and why are these new regulations so important? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Hey, I want to give you another um, piece of my own perspective is that I'm married to a former fraternity president and the mother of another fraternity president and get very interesting perspectives from both of them as well. And especially as we're talking about the whole gender-based elements. And uh, Title IX, of course, just real quick on a history, 1972 law, it was intended to equalize opportunities in education between the genders. Um, the first 20 years of that law really focused on balancing opportunities in education and athletics. There was a Supreme Court case that shifted all that in 1992 and said that the law of Title IX was also going to apply to cases. They used the term sexual harassment, which interestingly enough, our our uh, recent regulatory um, guidance from OCR has done the same thing. And um, from 1992, it's been, you know, a lot crazier because the law of Title IX also covered behaviors that we would typically think of as, as criminal behaviors. It could include sexual assault and rape and uh, other sexual-based behaviors. And as a result, you end up getting this challenge from the larger community of saying, why is the university dealing with this at all? The um, law enforcement should be addressing this. And the reality is, is that universities deal with it because by law we're required to as a result of the uh, Franklin case in 1992. So it makes it challenging. And one of the things that I think Scott and I'll be talking about is, um, where does it apply? How does it um, have a long arm reach in circumstances where people may be engaged in sexual behaviors that are not on the campus? Well, there's a piece of that puzzle, Sonny, that I think, uh, you know, I hear that a lot when people are upset about the issue. You, know, you, you hear from everybody, not just the Greek community, but from other constituents where they say, you know, these things are crimes. Why, why are campuses doing crimes? 
And honestly, if anybody would go back and read the 1999 Supreme Court Davis decision, the court not so tongue in cheek says campuses deal with all sorts of crimes. Um, and, you know, we've been handling off campus behaviors from vandalism to driving under the influence to drugs to every, up to murder. And of course, we're going to adjudicate these. And I always feel like, Gentry, it's a disingenuous argument uh, when people say that these things shouldn't be handled because it's the exact same person that if they were the victim of one of our students doing something would be clamoring at the dean's office. You got to do something about these students that represent your institution. So the Davis case was pretty clear. We do all sorts of crimes anyway. Uh, this just happens to be, when we talk about sexual assault in particular, it happens to be a crime that is difficult to manage because of the intimacy of it. Um, and is probably the hardest one to investigate. And a lot of arguments have been made that the criminal justice department is, is uniquely unsuited to address crimes involving sexual harassment. And the, and the data are out there, and I don't want to botch them, but an incredibly low percentage of cases result in any sort of prosecution and a lower percentage still result in any sort of, of criminal conviction. And I, I agree. I always question the motives of those who say, well, why are we investigating and adjudicating criminal behavior? Campuses have been doing that for years, underage drinking, drugs, physical violence, et cetera. And, and the, the thing I think to, to simplify even further for the listeners who are still understanding why this, why sexual assault is included under Title IX, Sonny referenced a case and the, the, the dots that are connected are basically this, Sexual discrimination is prohibited under Title IX, gender discrimination, and sexual harassment is a form of gender discrimination, and the most severe form of sexual harassment is sexual assault, right? So that's, that's kind of the dots that are connected that got us to a place where sexual assault is covered under Title IX on campus. And so uh, 2011, there's some new guidance issued from the Obama uh, Department of Education in the form of a dear colleague letter that finally put campuses on notice after years of suggestions, some, some more tersely worded language that was more than just suggestions uh, on how campuses should be handling this. And so that's really where the modern era started. And then uh, those regulations were not popular in certain circles. And so there's pushback from the libertarian side of things, from the conservative right. And so with a new administration, the promise of, of Betsy DeVos coming in and saying, we're going to rewrite these uh, regulations. We're going to go through an open comment process. Uh, just for context, Sonny, if you will, because one of the things that the opponents of the 2011 guidance were really upset about is that it didn't go through the normal rulemaking procedures, whereas this new guidance did. Explain to our listeners the, the difference between those two pieces of guidance as far as the weight of the law is concerned. I'm happy to, but you know what? I'm going to do it fast because this is just boring stuff. But um, typically a law is made by Congress. We elect senators and we elect representatives and in their best opinion and through their processes, they make laws. And um, in, which is why we've got the three branches of government. But there's an end run around congressional lawmaking um, that's through the Administrative Procedures Act, which allows an administrative agency, in this particular case, it was the Department of Education, to publish what they call proposed rulemaking they published it in the Federal Register. They gave it the requisite period of time for what they call notice for entities to respond. And by the way, more than 130,000 um, individuals and organizations submitted responses to those rule, 
to the proposed rulemaking. They took over a year to um, digest all those comments before they almost completely disregarded all of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, all of them that they disagreed with uh, or that had any kind of a, a liberal or a broader bent and basically inserted uh, as a final rule um, their own language they wanted to with lots of little nuanced areas related to it, which is why I think schools are very much scrambling right now. But once it's gone through that process, um, it's only again a lot of legal wrangling that may be able to occur in Congress to, uh, to invalidate that. But it has, in essence, the force and effect of laws. The, the courts can rely on that, the courts can cite to it. And the distinction between that and what happened in 2011, which we affectionately refer to as the tsunami that washed over the country and their recognition that they had obligations under Title IX. Um, but the big difference is what happened in 2011 was what they call a dear colleague letter. As my um, esteemed colleague on the line with us loves to say, and Scott, I'm gonna steal your line, um, we are not their colleagues and they are not dear to us. Uh, so uh, neither one of those words fit, but it also didn't create law. It created uh, an important piece of guidance, which a lot of institutions took as law. Um, but that's the big distinction is what we've got now. I would consider us to be stuck with it unless we can get a congressional uh, movement. Of course, we'd have to go through both houses to, uh, to invalidate it. Um, or unless if we have a different president uh, come next January, uh, that individual could, in essence, tell the education department to stop enforcing it, uh, to stop following that particular set of regulatory standards that their agency did. But um, we, from my standpoint, again, uh, barring any unforeseen or possibly foreseen uh, injunctions or other legal action that different groups are threatening, um, I think we're stuck with this for a while. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, I think I think you're right, Sonia. And we're going to see definitely some, we've already seen some lawsuits where they're asking for injunctive relief. And what injunctive relief is, is it's where the court orders, in this case, the OCR to either do something or stop doing something. And so they're asking them on a couple of these issues, particularly surrounding uh, cross-examination and live hearings. Um, and we'll, we can talk through more of that as we get a little further in. But one other thing I want to point out, and I think, this is critical, Gentry, for everybody to understand is um, what we're dealing with is a pendulum swing. And I think it's important for everybody, particularly folks who maybe are in school or freshly out of school who don't sort of have the big historical background on this, to understand how we got here, um, sort of this one step back is where we are, uh, is way back in the day, um, and I'm going to do this in like 30 seconds or less, I hope, probably two minutes, but uh, way back in the day, the way it worked on colleges is, and, and I'm going to be a little heteronormative, I'm going to speak about a, a young woman and a young man, um, but I know there's all sorts of same-sex cases and there's women who harass men and all that, but this is our stand, sadly all too typical case. And I always call them Annie and Bobby, just so I can keep track of them, A and B. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, when Annie would come into the dean's office and say, I've been sexually assaulted by Bobby, the school's response really was about, all right, Annie, well, let's get you home. You know, do you need to drop out? Do you need to withdraw? Do you need to change dorms? Do you, what, what can we do to help you up to and including moving you and kicking you out? Because we can't do anything to Bobby because he's not been found guilty of anything. And so it was really about this non-inconveniencing of Bobby. Um, then around mid-2000s, early 2000s, certainly to 2011, 
the pendulum starts swinging the other way. Andy walks in the door and says, I've been sexually assaulted by Bobby. Bobby's interim suspended. He's out. He's out of his dorm. He's out of school. He's sitting home. He's sent home before there's any analysis of any evidence. And that pendulum swing resonates a lot with this current OCR. Now, what TNG and the TICS had been doing between the early mid-2000s and then was kind of trying to ratchet that back a little bit to go, hey, we don't really need to interim suspend everybody, right? We should be thoughtful about how we do it. Let's keep them apart. No contact orders and make sure they're separated in class. And we were kind of pulling it back toward that middle. Dear colleague letter that Sonny just talked about hits, bam, we're right back to interim suspension lane. And so that, that pendulum swinging now way too far to the left, if you will, ends up with this kind of response. Because you add on to the 2011 Me Too, Larry Nasser, Time's Up, uh, Harvey Weinstein, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And that's like guilt, out, out Franken, guilt by allegation, right? Out of the gate, right? Um, how many governors, how many senators, congressmen, state senators, uh, people in the field just resigned on allegation, much less the ones that we know did something bad. So this is a wicked pendulum swing back, um, a, you know, a, a severe overreaction, if you will. Where we believe the field's headed is right back to that center point, where each case is thoughtfully deliberated. There's nothing discouraging any from coming in, but it's the, you know, you've been hearing a lot with the current allegations that have been coming against politicians. You know, the whole start by believing is, they're more like start by taking serious. We're gonna take this allegation seriously, but we're gonna do an analysis of it and be thoughtful about how we inconvenience people. Some of the language in these new regs, to be quite frank, I, I have no problem with at all. I, I think we should be thoughtful and narrowly tailor these interim actions that we take against the bodies of the world to, to lessen the impact on interrupting their academic progress while we look into this very serious matter. So, Scott, you made a, a few allusions to some of the more controversial provisions in the new guidance. And so I want to quickly get into that before we get into the things specifically related to fraternities and sororities. What are the pieces of this guidance that are so controversial where we really see a split between those who are on the side of advocating for victims and survivors and those who are on the side of advocating for respondents, due process, et cetera? So probably the most common, the most controversial one is the direct cross-examination. Yep. So turning the um, hearings uh, into places where any witness or party, and this is important, any witness or party uh, has to submit themselves to cross-examination by a representative of the other parties. And this OCR, I believe, saw that as a softening of the position. Because originally they were talking about direct cross-examination, which would be a nightmare for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is students aren't really sophisticated at representation. Right. Um, so not understanding the rules of cross-examination, how that really works, inappropriate questioning, blaming questions, things like that. Uh, but that the thought process was that somehow direct cross-examination brings to light the, the truthfulness and credibility of people in court and in these hearings when there's really not a lot of data to support that. Um, and actually, they've already sort of submitted to cross-examination during the investigation through an impartial investigator. So all of that has already happened, but it forces, so the controversial part is, you're forcing the, the claimants of the world, the people bringing forth these cases that may have made, let's assume for a moment that it did happen. That's a traumatizing event. Sexual assault's incredibly traumatizing. And you already talked, James, about the failings of the criminal justice system. What is one of them? They don't want to go in court and have to testify live and just be grilled. 
-hmm. So you add that component and suddenly your campus hearings look like court, criminal court. It's going to make that happen. As but, our friends at FIRE might call it a kangaroo court. I always, I, yeah. I've, I've gotten tickled in the last few weeks because literally they've used that term for a while. And anytime they want to disparage the work that trained professionals with graduate and in some cases law degrees uh, take out on their campuses, they, they call it a kangaroo court. Now with active legal representation, you're going to have actual kangaroo courts with people who aren't judges, who aren't trained to, to weigh, you know, uh, the legal side of all this necessarily. And, and you've got, and you know, we've all been at some point in our careers, campus conduct officers, these local attorneys who want to come in and yell and scream and show off for their clients. I mean, they're literally setting this up to be, the textbook definition of a kangaroo court and that's oh, and somehow supposed to to make the process better i've just never really understood gentry, that more, more interesting than that gentry is embedded in that and sonny i'm sorry but let me finish this okay. point. embedded in that controversial live cross-examination is it is probably an even more controversial component that if a party or a witness does not submit to cross-examination that hearing panel is not allowed to consider anything they've said um, one narrow exception is if what they said is an element of the allegation. So if the professor says, have sex with me and I'll give you an A, and then the professor doesn't submit to cross-examination, what he told her still counts. Right. So, but that's crazy because that doesn't happen anywhere else in any other form of law. Right. Right. Everywhere else, the jury would be able to hear things and then give them weight. Uh, they'd be able to get the hearsay testimony and give it weight. So that's how far off to that other side this so kind of thing has gone. And I just want to play it out this way with Bobby and Annie. So Bobby comes in with daddy's um, criminal defense attorney who always helped with, with white crime uh, offenses, um, crimes, and is represented by this attorney. And uh, Annie comes in with Aunt Maud because Aunt Maud is her just most trusted uh, individual. And that's who she wants to serve as her advisor. And those are the two people that are going to be doing the cross-examination. So Aunt Maud gets to cross-examine uh, Bobby, and the criminal defense attorney gets to cross-examine Aunt uh, Annie, and or just switch them up. Um, and so you start seeing the insanity in all this. The other piece that I want to add that complicates it further is every question that is asked has to be ruled on for relevance by the decision maker before it can be answered. So, you know, I had these visions of telling the jury, the non-existent jury, of course, to disregard that question. It's so bizarre and so legalistic and so terrifying that I'm with Scott. If I had been traumatized by a sexual act from another person, um, God forbid that I would submit myself through that kind of a process. Yeah, I think the other part, last part, Gentry, I'll add to that is um, in, in doing this, there is an, there's an interesting play. I think this might segue us into some of the fraternity and sorority concerns. There's an interesting disparity that existed in early student conduct. And student conduct officers wrote old codes like back in the 80s and 90s where they were essentially prosecutors. That was one of the arguments is you had this sophisticated student conduct person against this poor 18-year-old that needs representation in some hand. But a student conduct evolved, and Title IX processes by law have to be impartial. The student conduct evolved into that. It became a much more balanced thing. 
But when you had a crime or an offense or an allegation of a policy violation that involved a victim of some sort or somebody who had been traumatized or victimized or alleged to have been victimized, you have already have the disparity of affluence, right? If Annie or Bobby has cash and they can bring in the sharpest light legal minds to help them navigate these arguments and write these briefs and things like that and write their opinions and not opinions, but their statements versus the poor who don't, right? That's, that's an interesting piece. Um, take that and then layer it onto this. This has always been a piece that I, this is the part I think you might want to segue with. Um, it's fascinating to me when systems like the Greek system overall um, and unions this is another one we're dealing with a lot with these collective bargaining agreements. And you have these union representatives and in some cases some folks from the Greek systems um, who say, finally, you know, these rules are, are fair or they're cloaked under more due, pro more due process. They actually call it more due process um, instead of equal due process. They forget that a fair number of actual victims of these harassing behaviors, stalking, intimate partner violence, sexual assault, are also members of their system. And so in, in championing one side, you might be doing harm to the other. And they all belong to your same family. And I've had this discussion with Greek life folks, I've had this discussion with um, the union folks. Interestingly, not nearly as much of a, a vibrant discussion with athletics. Uh, who kind of everybody feels differently personally about this. Sure. And it's the, the other context that's important is we start to talk about the fraternity and sorority aspect of this. Fraternities have a vested interest in that. A lot of their members were the ones who were being accused of sexual assault, right? So you saw in the middle of all this political wrangling, you saw the fraternity and sorority political action committee led by a handful of national groups who won't be named on the podcast, but we all know who <laughs> they were advocating for two terrible pieces of legislation, the safe campus act and the fair campus act, oh, yeah. uh, making, you know, making political contributions to mostly Republican lawmakers to try and, and, and get that legislation passed. But that, that went over horribly in this industry. It caused a lot of uh, ill will towards those groups and a lot of lack of trust. Uh, frankly, I trace some of the challenges that we see in terms of the tension between campus-based professionals and headquarters-based professionals back to the fraternity and sorority political action committees, strong advocacy for those two terrible bills, which thankfully didn't become law, but a lot of what those bills asked for are, are in the new regulation. So, so, so this has really been an ongoing conversation within fraternity and sorority. Let's talk specifically about how this impacts groups on our campuses. And let's start with just generally, is there any change in the regulation to the process by which a Title IX case involving a group like a fraternity or sorority, the process through which that would be handled, the means by which that would be handled? Talk us through a little bit of just the procedural elements of what if this is a group like a fraternity and not just your Bobby and, and Annie uh, analogy that you used earlier? So I'll start. First of all, it was determined to be systemic. So if you have the group is as a matter of some process or, you know, formal informal processes circulating a video of a young woman or a young man um, that would be harassing in nature on the basis of gender. Uh, that complaint would have to come from that individual to the Title IX coordinator. Now, if there was enough complaints about the same group, the Title IX coordinator 
could bring the bring the complaint or file the formal complaint. I'm using the terms that the OCR uses. We always use different terminologies, but they would they could file the complaint themselves and start the investigation. Um, Ginger, you and I were co-authors with uh, some other folks of a model organizational code of conduct. Um, and if a campus has that, then it would default to that. Um, the Title IX coordinator would be involved because it is an allegation that would involve gender-based discrimination, but the board code of conduct would also govern uh, the disciplinary process. And so you'd want those processes to match up. But in that and, and that case, model code was specifically designed with that in mind, and that it's independent investigator model that would very easily lend itself to that sort of a of a process. Absolutely, and in that case, though, the organization itself doesn't get the same kind of due process rights that the individuals would. Right? We only give organizations as much due process as we give them, um, and so that's why we wrote that with that in mind. The individuals, though, would have a lot trickier path. Like the person who actually sent that video from point A to point B. Uh, that person would be going through their own investigation with the Title IX office, with the Student Conduct Office, possibly at their nationals, possibly with their local chapter. And again, having that org conduct model, if you've adopted it, to mirror your student conduct and mirror your Title IX with all having very similar aspects of your process is going to serve you well in the long run. But you go through that same process all the way up to here. And, and that's a soapbox we've been on for years. And, and one of the things, if you've not looked at the, the dyad model code, I hope folks will, because it is it is literally designed with that process in mind, that if you're investigating a case, particularly a case where there's a victim, it doesn't have to just be Title IX, this could be hazing, and sometimes hazing cases are also Title IX cases, but that your process needs to be seamless. And it needs to be such that if you get in the middle of an investigation and you realize, oh God, this is Title IX, we have to now stop and kick it over and start the whole process again, um, you, you really need that process to be seamless. And so, so to summarize what Scott said here, make sure I get this right, organizations don't have the same protections as individuals through the federal Title IX law and this, and this new regulation. Uh, allegations that stem from organizations are required to be investigated in much the same way, but procedurally, this would normally go through whatever, if you have an org conduct process, whatever that would look like, any individuals that were involved, if there was a concurrent investigation into maybe, as you shared, the person who sent the message initially, that would go through the Title IX process specifically as outlined in these regulations. Right. The other one that I thought was really interesting is, Sonny, and I know you're going to want to talk about this quite a bit, or maybe however just you want to run that. Uh, controversial aspects of it was off-campus jurisdiction. Yep. Yeah. Um, so one of the things they said was schools are not required uh, to take off-campus jurisdiction over things. In fact, they might have to mandatorily dismiss it under Title IX for certain off-campus behaviors. And the exception they carved in, I think, Gentry, this speaks to, you know, that uh, all that lobbying that was going on to try to say, you know, get these campuses out of our off-campus fraternity houses and off-campus sorority houses. That was, I think, uh, another one where the OCR felt like, or at least it read to me like they felt like, you know what, we're going to give one to the non-fraternity group side. And even in the webinar where they explain or attempt to explain the regs in like seven minutes or less, they actually say, however, if it is an off-campus property controlled by a recognized student organization, then the school can assert jurisdiction over what goes on in that property. And I think they were also looking to alcohol and drugs, not just sexual assault. They're thinking of a broader piece. There were two court opinions, Weckhorst and Farmer, where the, the school says, 
we're not going to serve jurisdiction over the rate, but we're going to cite the organization for underage drinking. And the court not so kindly says, are you kidding me? <laughs> that's, that's the moral line you draw in the sand. So you want to comment on that at all? Well, I, yeah, I was going to talk about the wet horse and farmer uh, quickly, too, because I think it, it ties in so closely with this. But um, one of the things, and, and you can tell me if I'm reading it wrong, but I don't think that, uh, they, that the new regs say that they may take jurisdiction if it's owned or controlled by a registered student organization. I think it says they must. Yeah. Um, they they can um if it is not owned or controlled i mean we're internally having lots of conversations about what if it's the lacrosse team and they're leasing a house um or what if it's you know a recognized fraternity but they don't own they're just renting and they don't control it they're only it's like an annex and there's a bunch of different fraternities there so lots of different kinds of nuances but it seems to me that if it's owned or controlled in your registered student organization, you're going to be under the Title IX uh, rubric, which will be very interesting. And and those annex houses, Sonny, are, are one of the specific questions that come up because that's becoming more and more common, right? As, as college sure. campuses have cracked down on uh, drinking, other activities in, in on-campus or even recognized off-campus properties through national policies of dry housing, you know, I'm a chapter advisor of my group at the University of Tennessee, and I know in talking to my colleagues that almost every fraternity on campus here, they've got their house on campus on Fraternity Row, which is technically and more or less dry, but they all have these unofficial party houses sure. over in this neighborhood, and they're not owned or controlled by the fraternities. It's five upperclassmen who live there, but that's the unofficial party house. And it's not on campus. It's literally right across the street from campus, but there's no letters on the house. There's no name of the fraternity on the lease, but they operate as de facto social houses for these organizations. Nothing in these new regulations would preclude campuses from enforcing Title IX on a property like that if they wanted to. No, actually, it does. Yeah, it actually um, it, absolutely does. It would does. preclude them from doing it under Title IX. It would not preclude them. So we have the same, let's say, the exact same sexual-based behavior. One occurs in a house owned and controlled by the national organization. Uh, it's all members of the fraternity. And the other's got the five seniors in it. It's the common party house. Um, that is not that there's no way that can be taken under title nine same conduct um, now it may come under uh, a sexual misconduct policy it may come under a student code of conduct but it's specifically exempted from title nine yeah, which so is what, another what reason entry yeah. what will happen is that behavior will get reported and the institution is going to say it's a sexual assault at this house that you know five members of whatever organization and I think it's important for the folks in Greek life to understand, they did not say fraternities and sororities. They used that as an example in their webinar. Sure. But um, this is the rugby house, the lacrosse house, the chess club house, the debate club house, any group uh, that would be recognized. Um, so what's going to happen is the institution is going to hand that over to the Title IX office and the Student Code of Conduct office, and they're going to have a conversation, hopefully work in concert. They're going to say, we're going to charge you with these Title IX violations, these generalized harassment violations, these student conduct allegations, and then once they go, oh, well, it was an off-campus house that wasn't controlled, we got to pull these Title IX ones out, but all this other stuff lives. It's, it's really just a semantics argument. 
that begins to amass me into targets. Going through a hoop. You just got to jump through this hoop of dismissing these allegations and leaving all the other ones there. We've got to have our own process for how we address that, but nothing would stop us from addressing it. Title IX represents a floor, not a ceiling, right? We can still address these in the manner that is consistent with our own policies. We just don't address it through Title IX. Correct. Yeah, it would not be a Title IX because we would lack jurisdiction over that. But what's going to get litigated is exactly that thing. If I've got, and I'll take it out of Greek life for a minute, um, if I have five lacrosse players who all live there, and then they graduate, three of them graduate, and three more lacrosse players move in, and then two of them graduate, and two more lacrosse players move in, that's the lacrosse house. Everybody knows it's the lacrosse house. And it's going to get litigated like that. People are going to say, you said owned and controlled by, isn't this just de facto controlled by? You know, they're using the money to pay dues and does any money change hands? So that's going to be litigation aspect number one. The other thing that's really interesting is the reason you're going to have to do what you just talked about is the OCR completely ignored liability. They only thought about Title IX liability because if the, if the school says, I know that this is happening at this de facto house, but I'm not going to do anything about it because I can't take Title IX jurisdiction. So they don't even do anything with these other misconduct policies or the student code of conduct. And then that same guy or group of guys or group of women, it can be men, women, doesn't matter, commits the same offense and does harm to victim B, C, D, they're going to get sued in state court for negligence, right? That's what's going to pop up. Failure to protect, failure to warn, failure to properly train, properly train and supervise. There's an exposure point there that can't go away. So schools now are having to go through this Title IX hoop, also protect themselves from liability. So the, the, the lesson to be learned here, Scott and, and Sonny, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Now's the time to tighten up your organizational misconduct process because you're going to be addressing a lot of off-campus behavior potentially uh, that has maybe historically fallen under a different process. Now you've got to have your own rules and your own process by which to address some of this that falls outside of your Title IX policy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. absolutely. That should have been in play anyway. Sure. Um, I think the important piece is, is that it really solidified that, uh, and again, from my standpoint, the Kansas case really uh, drove the nail in that coffin when the school, the, the sexual assaults that were reported, if anyone is familiar with that case, or if we've got Kansas people on hello, but um, the sexual assaults that were reported were really egregious. They were, you know, in with a lot of detail, horrifying stories. And when the school said, not going to handle it, not our responsibility. Off campus, literally right across the street. Not, right, not figurative, literally across the street. From literally campus. across the street, but they addressed alcohol issues. Um, I think that just was a nail in the coffin. There's got to be the consistency that schools have got to tighten it up and recognize A, their vulnerability now. Um, and because this, is, this doesn't become is it within our jurisdiction or not, if it happens in the house, but let's say it's not. And I agree with Scott, you start getting the extension of liability, uh, negligence and liability, and um, probably have a lot of house corporations and chapter advisors, just like you, Gentry, that um, that makes you very nervous. Sure. And so, imagine, this, imagine this little quandary, Gentry. It's literally across the street. It's our students that live in it. They all belong to a recognized student organization. They're telling us you don't necessarily have Title IX jurisdiction over it, and maybe you don't want to assert any jurisdiction, wet coast farmer. <laughs> Interestingly, we would have to report that under our clarity statistics, too. Right. 
but that this isn't like McDonald's across the street from campus where we don't control any part of anybody who works at McDonald's. These are all our people. Right. <laughs> right? Immediately adjacent to campus. Uh, fascinating. I want to change topics a little bit because there's a few other things I want to cover. One of the really confusing things under the old guidance, uh, under the 2011 guidance, had to do with who is a responsible university employee. Uh, and this particularly got weird with fraternities and sororities where you had campuses saying that someone like myself, who's not in any shape or form other than a, a graduate of the university 20 years ago, I'm not a, employed by the university. The employ, I, I, I have no formal relationship with the university other than that I help advise a student organization there. There are campuses that have tried to make people like me mandated reporters, uh, even though they're not employees of the university. There are other campuses who went so far as to try and make organizational uh, presidents, you know, so like a, a fraternity or sorority chapter president, you're a mandated reporter. So if you're aware of anything that has happened, you're required under our policy uh, as, a, as a responsible university employee, even though you're not an employee at all to report this. There's some new reporting guidelines in the new guidance. There's some easing of restrictions, but again, it's one of those situations where it's really more of a floor than a ceiling. Uh, what, if any, clarifications did we get in the new guidance about who is, and, and more importantly, who is not uh, a mandated reporter? M much, much softer than, they, than their original position. Their original position was they were going to take it back and say, only these people are responsible employees or mandatory reporters, and nobody else is. Uh, they softened that to position to say, people who have actual authority, so anybody who can take action to address sexual harassment, if they find out, then the school is on notice. There's no question. It's a real strict reading in that old Davis case we were referencing. Mm -hmm. but then they left the door open and said, but if you want to designate anybody else you want, you can. Um, but not as a responsible employee, as a mandatory reporter, because the responsible employee pool now has shrunk, has shrunk only to those individuals that have the authority to take action? No longer just the perceived authority, because that was something in the 20, 2011. So they've removed it's the perceived not. authority. You have to have the actual authority. You have now. to have actual authority to be able to take uh, corrective action. But um, so they've, used, they've carved out that term, responsible employee, in that very narrow way. But they did go on to say institutionally, if you want to have a policy, now that long arm policy is not going to reach someone like you, Gentry, that they have no authority to tell you that you must report. Um, they would not, I, I would assume with a fraternity president, unless that fraternity president was also an employee, I think it's that employment connectivity that allows an institution to create uh, a higher uh, standard, you know, whether you want to call it the floor or the ceiling, but um, an expanded or an obligatory piece. But the other piece that I want to add is that um, the regulations went on to say that if someone doesn't report, they're not going to be subject to legal action um, because they're not designated by law as reporters. They would only be designated by policy. And right. so they may be subject, they may be subject to um, institutional action, but like if you were an employee at your school where you're an advisor and you were also an advisor, and somebody told you something and you didn't report it and so you held it to yourself and they find that out later uh, the school is still never going to be on the hook for you knowing that information let's um, be clear though Tony, on the hook under title nine under title nine yeah but if our fictitious annie from before 
told seven professors that she'd been sexually assaulted and they never talked to the behavior intervention team on campus or the care team on campus. They don't even ask the Title IX coordinator, no, none of them, right? Because they're like, we're not responsible employees, so we're not going to tell anybody right. anything. If they do that, you're still going to find yourself in court, in state court, arguing foreseeability, Respond and you're going to have to yeah, fall back on this. Right. Yeah, it's, it's going to go under a different type of law. So you're just off the hook under Title IX. But what's really interesting, Gentry, and you and I spoke over the years about this, I had clients come to me and say things like that, say, Scott, help me craft a policy where I can make the Gentry McCrary chapter advisor guy a mandatory reporter. And I always said, why? Why would you do that? <laughs> One, you're asking somebody to report something that you are telling me already you know they don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Your only stick with them doesn't exist with them. It only exists with the organization. So you have to write this weird policy that says, if you're a recognized student organization, your non-employee chapter advisor has to agree to be a responsible employee and tell us about all the bad things he, he or she sees or we'll strip your recognition. Good luck That's getting crazy. anyone to serve as a chapter advisor. That's right. right. Yeah. But, but think but, about it but, this way. So Annie tells right. all these professors or tells her chapter advisor what happened and they never tell the Title IX office. And so as a result, Annie has lots of emotional issues. She has failing grades, lots of stuff going on with Annie. And she says, you know, I told all these important people at the school, I'm going to file an OCR complaint or maybe even a, a Title IX lawsuit because they behaved with deliberate indifference. It's a legal term that Title IX says you're not allowed to do. And um, because I told people in good faith that this happened to me. Now, the employees may get in trouble with the institution. And Anne is such that Annie may have a state law claim um, for respondent superior. I told an agent of your school and you should know. But Annie doesn't have a Title IX claim. She doesn't right. have an OCR uh, claim. Yeah. So, Gentry, to, to your other point, though, the issue of, um, and I'm with Sonny on the chapter presidents, they're not employees. It puts them in a really weird space, you know, unless they're getting paid somehow by the institution. Uh, but this notion of when they try to get the Gentry chapter advisors of the world to report, my other question is one, why do you want to do it? You're right. Good luck finding a chapter advisor. And the other one is, why won't, why won't your chapter advisors talk to you? Like what kind of culture have you created on campus where your chapter advisors feel like your conduct office or your student org office is just out to get them? That's right. right? I mean, you would want to create a world where, Hey, I'm going to come talk to you. And I, I actually am still really good friends with one of the chapter advisors at the University of South Carolina. And when I was serving, uh, overseeing the conduct process there, uh, he would regularly come and say, Hey man, my guy's messed up. Like, can we get them in here, have a Sunday come to Jesus? You know, what can we do to address this? Because I don't want them really, this is, this is a starting pack. Yeah. Because you, he knew we, go ahead. Yeah, because he knows that we're not out to burn a chapter. I'm not out to kick people out of school. We're out to make sure these kids don't make dumb decisions that could lead to catastrophic results. And so there's ways we can nip that in the bud. You know, it was the same with athletics, right? I mean, it's, it's all that same closed community. You got to, they got to trust you. Uh, but if I create that culture of I'm just have to burn these guys because they're always getting away with shit, well, then we're going to go down. No trust, no transparency. It's, it's going to be a difficult situation. Have either of you been following the, uh, the Max Groover case in Louisiana? 
Um, so Max Gruber, fraternity member, uh, killed in, in a hazing incident, uh, particularly uh, gruesome hazing incident. Uh, in the lawsuit um, of Louisiana State University and others, one of the things they're suing under is Title IX, specifically saying that uh, the university did not enforce hazing uh, policies as strictly with the men's groups as they did with the women's groups and arguing for gender-based discrimination. Uh, it's a relatively new approach. There have been a couple of cases now in the hazing world that have used a similar framework. Doug Freiberg, who I know you know is the attorney in this case, uh, A, do you think that's a sound legal strategy, but B, do these new regulations have any impact on that sort of a lawsuit moving forward? Interesting. Um, that's go ahead, Tony. Well, I was just going to say, Scott, I wanted you to take it because that was the case that you covered for Campus McCourts and did such a good job. The Title IX claims have actually been dropped, as I recall, but um, with other claims moving forward. But I think it's an interesting concept. I think you should um, talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I think one of the issues they run into, Gentry, was that, you know, proving that one group is being held responsible more so for a violation of policy than another group expressly on the basis of gender uh, is an interesting argument, and I think it's difficult to prove. And I think that's what ultimately they find out is, can they really do it? Well, you know, this argument's been made in other facets, right? Why are there more, you know, actually to the OCR, right? Why are there more sexual assault claims filed against men than women? Well, because statistically, we know more men are engaging in sexual harassment than women. It's just, it's statistical, right? Uh, the number's going up for women, but it just doesn't, it's a hard thing to show, right? So they would either have to show that you're only doing it this way because of their status as men, not as fraternities, because fraternities by definition are men, but they're by definition men because they're accepted from Title IX. It's a weird argument. Uh, so I, I just think it's really hard. I don't think these regs have done anything really to alter that type of allegation other than perhaps at those unofficial houses, if the hazing is sex-based, where before you could assert a Title IX, so sexualized hazing, you know, that involves touching of genitals or sexual acts and things like that, they would have normally gone under Title IX. Now they have to be dismissed under Title IX, but again, got to shore up that org policy because that is definitively systemic and organizational based and individual based. And so we got to make some decisions on how we're going to handle those moving forward. Any, any parting advice that you would give to our listeners, again, kind of knowing who the audience is, fraternity and sorority advisors, both on campus, as well as those who are, who are working on the headquarters side, as they think about how this impacts them, any, any final words of advice or, or follow-up that you would give to, to our listeners as it relates to these new changes? Yeah, I think that I think they really need to um, do some focus on orientation every year when they get a new crop of people moving into the house. It's the the house uh, and the institution, their affiliation with the institution that makes them vulnerable under a Title IX framework. And one of the reasons that that becomes scary is exactly what Scott was talking about, the live hearings, the cross-examination. And so I think the orientation related to that's important being really aware of what has your school uh, put into their policies that are not required by Title IX in terms of how they plan to address off-campus, in particular off-campus uh, conduct. So just as you said, it may be in the party house. Does the institution's uh, uh, provisions allow them to do that kind of um, 
jurisdictional element. And so being really familiar with what your school says and uh, orienting the students to um, the, the safest route is going to be important. Yeah, I would say Gentry, you know, particularly to the national organizations and um, the chapter advisors, uh, let me speak to them first. You know, at the end of the day, we all have the same goal. You know, we don't want anybody to get railroaded, but we also don't want anybody to get hurt. Um, and, and we don't want our young men and women engaging in behaviors that are harmful to each other. That's, that's a goal. I, I can't recall anybody's pledge manual <laughs> or chapter values being first do harm. Like that's, that's just not where they are. It's all about being uh, people of character, uh, people who, you know, temper action with wisdom. Like this, this is what we're trying to teach. So if you're somebody who's viewing these as a shield so that you can not have a certain group, you know, whether it's guys or gals, get away with stuff, then I'd say you're not following the own tenets of your own organization. And that's troubling. If that's our goal, that's troubling, we need to revisit it. And it's that kind of trouble, I think, that has led a number of university presidents to start reconsidering Greek life on the whole. Um, even with these regs, I've never heard in the halls of Congress when I've been down there, like I've heard this last two or three years of, is it worth it anymore? Is it just worth it? You know, the PR problems, the nightmares, the, you know, everything that you see happening, the cases we've referenced. Um, to the students that are uh, leadership, and it's probably most of the people listening to this podcast who are Greek life folks or leaders on campus, you have those same goals. Um, know that if you have been the victim of harassment, even with these regs and the extended due process, there's still a lot of protections in there for someone who comes forward to not be re-victimized or re-traumatized. But there's also protections for, you know, that person who's been accused of something. And schools are going to learn to navigate it. I just finished editing a 60-page implementation guide. We're offering campuses a way through a TICSA, the Title IX group, to uh, sort of navigate these to, to keep those protections equitable, because that's really the goal here. Um, and, and I think we all have that same overarching goal. Let's not hurt each other. Awesome. Scott, Sonny, we could go on for hours. We don't you have hours. <laughs> this, is, this has been fun. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. And, and Sonny, I'm, I'm, I'm horribly sorry. I, I mistook your sorority affiliation. I, I, I know how disappointed you are that I'm not marrying a Kappa Delta. Um, I, I went find you, you know, it was a hard decision. I but, know but, you did. You know, I've given you a hard time over the years. It's the first thing I always ask, what's the Greek <laughs> affiliation? And big disappointment, not a KD, but not disappointed in your choice. Uh, hey, Gentry, you imagine what I had to go through when I, I, I married an independent. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a smart move. Thanks for coming on, y'all. Take care. So this episode with Scott and Sonny really has me thinking a lot about the need for campuses to have a clear, transparent, and consistent way that they address organizational misconduct. And that need has always been there, but that need is more important now than it ever has been. The timing couldn't be better for us in terms of the recent release of our Dyad Model Code of Student Organization Conduct. And not that the Dyad Model Code is the best or the only option out there for campuses, but I think it provides a really good framework for how a process that is consistent with Title IX that features an independent investigator model can really help campuses during this crazy time as we're still navigating exactly what this looks like. So if you've not had a chance to check out the model code, encourage you to go to our website at www.dyadstrategies.com and check it out. 
We'll be dropping our next normal scheduled podcast next week, uh, but wanted to jump in quickly and in a timely way to have this really important conversation about Title IX. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll chat again soon. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, a production of Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com. Thank you.